You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 5, and we're going to read together verses 9 through verse 17, or 9 through 18, actually, of John 5. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It's the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who's the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? The man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Let's bow our heads together. Our Father, we come now to your Word. We believe that in your Word we see even light, and the unfolding of your Word brings us truth and brings us light. With your Word before us, we know that our hearts are also before you, and we pray that you would open our hearts and eyes to behold in your Word wonderful things. O Spirit of God, blessed Spirit, be our teacher our guide, and instruct us here this morning and give us attentive ears to be doers of your word and not just hearers only, that you might be glorified through a God-honoring and God-loving response to your precious truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. To say that the Jews had corrupted the Sabbath is an understatement. Did you get that sense after last week? They had so heaped tradition upon tradition and rule upon rule and a regulation upon regulation where God had not spoken, they jumped in and decided to go ahead and speak and fill in all of the white spaces in the text with their man-made traditions and their rules. And it had gotten so bad that literally the this true meaning of the Sabbath and the true celebration of the Sabbath was veiled from their eyes. They couldn't see the God of the Sabbath or and they couldn't even celebrate rightly the Sabbath because they had so corrupted and so prostituted, so polluted the Word of God, by their traditions and their man-made regulations and rules, Jesus was rightly and righteously indignant and incensed over their violation of Scripture by their man-made traditions. Do you remember back in John chapter 2, the whole episode in the temple and the cleansing of the temple? These same people in Jerusalem who criticized this man for picking up his pallet and walking on the Sabbath were the same ones who had taken the entire sacrificial system, which was symbolic of and pointed to the Savior and the need for a sacrifice and was an act of worship itself, they had taken that very thing and turned it completely on its head by making it into a commercial mockery right inside the temple courts itself. And do you remember what Jesus did to that crass commercialization of the worship of the one true God? He went and He cleansed the temple. He was righteously angry at them polluting and twisting something that was so pure and so good and so righteous. 
the same thing was true of their violation of the Sabbath. And see, in, in fact, we see the same thing was true with their violation of all of the commandments of God, their nullifying of the commandments of God by their vain traditions and their teachings of men. Jesus rightly attacked and condemned the Pharisees and the Jews and the self-righteous people of his day for such violation of the Sabbath and such a prostitution of the Word of God. You see it all the way through the Gospels. It comes up in different ways. In, in Matthew, hmm, was it Matthew 12 we, looked, we read last week? I think it was Matthew 12 last week with the picking of the heads of grain in the fields and the Pharisees attacked him and jumped on him and said, you're violating the Sabbath. Why was that? Well, because they had, they had picked the grain which was reaping and they had ground it between their fingers to get the husks off and that was uh, threshing and then they had blown away the chaff which was constituted winnowing and then they had eaten food not set aside prior to the Sabbath on the Sabbath. There was four violations of the Sabbath law not real Sabbath law, but their Sabbath law, just in that one action. And so there was this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees over his disciples' supposed violation of the Sabbath. Then we see it again in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, we have Jesus' rather lengthy rebuke and reproval of them. And we read that in our Scripture reading where Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He says in Mark 7, verse 8, they neglected the commandment of God. You hold to the tradition of men. You are, and listen to this, this is, this is horribly scathing. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. That's great. That's great language. You are experts at taking the Word of God and setting it aside so that you can fastidiously keep, fastidious, fastidiously, so that you can Perfectly keep the commandments of men. Then he said in Mark 7, Jesus said they invalidated the Word of God by their tradition. Matthew chapter 23 is a scathing rebuke of the scribes and the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. And most of those woes to the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites had to do with them heaping the commandments and traditions of men upon the Word of God. And so polluting and twisting the Word of God as to basically make it null and void by their commandments of men. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Matthew 23, verse 4. They, he said this speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a little finger. Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, Jesus said, and in Matthew chapter 9, he said it as well, you have no understanding of the Old Testament text which says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Jesus' perfect keeping of the Word of God meant that at some points, at some point, he was going to have to violate the commandments of men. They had so polluted the Word of God with their own commandments that they were in many cases opposite one of the other. So if Jesus was going to keep the commandment of God and fulfill the law of God perfectly, He was inevitably going to cross purposes with all of the traditions and the commandments of the elders. And so if He was going to keep the commandments of elders, He would end up violating Scripture. 
If he's going to keep Scripture, he's going to end up violating the commandments of men. And so that is why, over and over in the Gospels, we see Jesus running across the scribes and the Pharisees and this conflict over him not washing his hands, not washing cups, not washing bowls, eating grain on the Sabbath, healing people on the Sabbath, carrying pallets on the Sabbath. All of those things which were not violations of the law of God, but were violations of rabbinic tradition. That's how badly they had corrupted all of those laws. You see it all the way through every one of the Gospels. It is this constant conflict. Does he keep the law of God or does he abide by the traditions and the commandments of men? And there's no greater example of that conflict than in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, in this whole controversy that ensues after he has healed the man who was lying at the pool of Bethesda at the sheep gate, having laid there waiting for a cure, he had been ill and paralyzed and lame in his feet for 38 years and Jesus healed him and said, Get up, take up your pallet, and walk. And the man got up. Immediately he was healed, took up his pallet, and walked. And then that little detail at the end of verse 9, it was the Sabbath that day, which is the one thing that explains all of the controversy now that ensues beginning at verse 10. So now we pick it up again at verse 10, and look what happens. John chapter 5, verse 10. The Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. It's the Sabbath. And it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now the Jews, the Jews that are spoken of there in verse 10 is not a reference, and this is not how John uses the word, it's not a reference just to your average Jew on the street. Not just a average, your average person, the people at the pool or the people milling around, uh, or, or doing business or anything. It's not just, it's not an ethnic term. It is actually, in a semi-technical way, John's way of referring to the hostile Jews. Those who oppose Jesus at every turn. So by Jews, John means here, as he does in other places in the gospel, we've seen a couple of those up to chapter 5. He's talking about the religious leaders of the nation, those who were hostile to Jesus, those who constantly opposed him, those who hounded his steps, those with whom Jesus had the tension. That's who these Jews are. They saw a man carrying his pallet on the Sabbath day out of the pool. Now this would have been immediate. The man would have left the pool, and keep in mind the pool is outside the sheep gate. It's very near to the temple, just to the north of the temple. So this man, carrying his pallet on a Sabbath day, would have stood out in the crowd, don't you think? Because likely around the temple there were Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and other fastidious Jews who were doing everything they could to keep the Sabbath and not travel very far. This man, carrying his bedroll on his shoulder, would have stood out in the crowd. And people would have began to talk. They would have seen him. Look look at that guy carrying his pallet on Sabbath. And everybody, every eye would have turned to see this guy who, to the Jewish mind, was clearly in violation, utter and total violation of the Sabbath. Well, he ran across some Jews who were Pharisees or scribes or Sadducees, fastidious Jews, who confronted him and said, it is not lawful for you to carry your pallet on the Sabbath. Now, what they would have had in mind was maybe not necessarily Exodus 20 or Exodus 34 or Exodus 23, the passages that we looked at last week, because we saw from those passages that there was nothing about not carrying pallets on the Sabbath, was there? There's nothing in any of the passages or laws relating to the Sabbath that had anything to do with carrying a pallet or carrying a bedroll on the Sabbath. That wasn't expressly prohibited. But the Jews of that day, as they confronted this man, would have probably had in mind one or both of two passages in the Old Testament that did speak of not bearing a burden or carrying a burden on the Sabbath. And if you had asked them, if you had been standing there while this confrontation started, and you had asked them, what passage are you talking about that prohibits this man from carrying his pallet, his bed roll, on the Sabbath? And by the way, when you think of pallet, don't think of big pallet. It's just a word. It just meant bed roll. It was kind of something probably not much larger than 
our sleeping bag. A thin mat with a pillow and a blanket which would rolled up. It would have been something that paralyzed people staying out in the public like that would have had underneath them. So not something much bigger than a sleeping bag. What passage do you have in mind to confront this man about carrying his burden on the Sabbath? And they probably would have quoted Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 15, which says, In those days I, that's Nehemiah, saw in Jerusalem some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. That's Nehemiah 13. Or they might have quoted Jeremiah 17, verse 21. Thus says the Lord, take heed for yourselves and do not carry any load on the Sabbath or bring anything through the gates of Jerusalem. And the rest of the passage goes on to tell the Jews that they needed to honor and observe the Sabbath in Jeremiah's day. So they would have quoted those two passages. They would have said, see, there are two passages that speak of not loading your donkey, carrying a burden, putting your grain and your wine up onto a donkey, and carrying them through the gates of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah talks about not bearing a burden or carrying a burden on the Sabbath. Those two passages are what we would use to say that carrying any kind of burden, doing any kind of work on the Sabbath, is unlawful by the law of God. Now the problem with both Nehemiah 13 Jeremiah 17 is both of those passages have nothing at all to do with the scene in John chapter 5, and they have everything to do with the commandment to keep the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20, and it had to do with working and laboring. What was the commandment in Exodus 20? It was really simple and really easy. What you do for six days, don't do on the seventh day. Period. That's it. You work and do this on day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, and day six. Day seven is different. Do something different on day seven than you do days one through six. Don't treat day seven like you do the rest of those days. Don't make it indistinguishable from the rest of your week. Observe it unto me. Set it aside as special, as holy. Treat it differently. So whatever you're doing for a living on days one through six, don't do that thing on day seven. Set it aside and treat it as different. Make it holy. Sanctify it. Put it apart. Make it different. That was the law. What were they doing in Nehemiah's day and Jeremiah's day? Well, in Nehemiah's day, they were bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of load, and brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day and sold their food. What does that sound like? Does that sound like carrying your pallet? Does that sound like doing business on the Sabbath? It has to do with doing business on the Sabbath. It doesn't have anything to do with what the man in John chapter 5 is doing. Listen. His work for six days was not carrying pallets, not carrying bedrolls. He didn't do this for a living. There's nothing about doing this on day seven that makes profane the Sabbath day since that was not his occupation the first six days of the week. He had been healed. So he's picking up his bedroll and he's carrying it home on the Sabbath. No violation of the law of God, but a violation in every way of the laws of men, the tradition of men, and the traditions of the elders, and the commandments of the elders, and the scribes, and the Pharisees, and all their self-righteous requirements that they had put on the law. It violated that in every way. It was not a sin for this man to carry his bedroll on the Sabbath. You know how else we know it wasn't a sin for him to carry his bedroll on the Sabbath? Because Jesus commanded him to do it. Would Jesus command a man to sin? Would Jesus command a man to sin? He would not. If it had been a violation of the Sabbath law for this man to carry his bedroll, Jesus would have never said to him, pick up your bedroll and walk. Jesus would never have commanded this man to violate the very covenant 
that Jesus came to fulfill on our behalf. Further, it was not a sin for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. It wasn't a violation of Exodus 20 or 23 or 34 or any of the passages in the Old Testament that have to do with Sabbath keeping for somebody to heal on the Sabbath. But you remember the commandments of men? What did they say you couldn't do on the Sabbath? You couldn't wrap a wound. Do you remember this? You couldn't wrap a wound if it meant that the wound would be improved or healed in any way. Because that was to improve the physical condition of the man. So you could only wrap a wound if it meant making it so that the wound wouldn't get worse. But you couldn't make it better. Because if you improve a condition or situation, you have worked. So by their definition, had Jesus worked on the Sabbath by healing this man? Certainly. He had improved his physical condition. He had healed the man and taken away his burden. So by the commandments of men, Jesus had violated the Sabbath. But by the commandments of God, he had not violated any Sabbath law. He had violated no Sabbath law of the Old Testament by healing this man. Furthermore, Jesus himself couldn't sin, so it wasn't a sin for him to violate the Sabbath. He couldn't sin, so it wasn't a sin for him to command this other man to pick up his pallet and walk. And if Jesus had picked up the man's pallet and walked, it would not have been a violation of the Sabbath. So you can see the hardness and the blindness of their heart, right? It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. So what does the man say to him? He who healed me told me to pick up my pallet and walk. So what does the man point to? I've been healed. Did they catch that? Who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? That's what they want to know. And the man is saying, I was lying for 38 years, unable to walk, and now I'm walking. And the very thing that the Pharisees should have been celebrating, they were condemning. Here was a crippled man who was now able to walk. It should have been a source of rejoicing. It should have been a source of praising God. But it wasn't for them, was it? All they saw was what? He's carrying his pallet on the Sabbath. See, this whole, this whole miracle in John chapter 5 is really a microcosm of the whole Sabbath issue on a much larger scale. Just as it is true that they could not see the true meaning of the Sabbath because of all their rules and their regulations and the commandments of men that kept them from observing the true God and the true Sabbath, so they could not see the cure or the miracle or the miracle worker or the blessing through all of their rules and their regulations. Here stood a man before them who had been cured and all they could see, all they could see was the fact that he was carrying his pallet on the Sabbath. And John, all the way through this passage, in a very subtle way, highlights for us the fact that this man had been cured. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 calls it says, the man became well. Verse 10, the Jews were saying to the man who was cured. Verse 11, he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up my pallet and walk. Verse 13, but the man who was healed did not know who it was. Jesus says in verse 14, behold, you have become well. Look at verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Six times in seven verses, John mentions the healing. He was healed. He was cured. He was made well. He was made better. He was able to walk. Time and time again, John is mentioning this, but guess what goes right over everybody's head? The fact that he was cured. That's the thing that stated over and over and over and over again, and that's the thing they entirely missed. They entirely missed the fact that he had been cured, that he had been healed. And all they could see was the Sabbath violation right in front of their eyes. That's all they could see. And it's almost as if there's this neon sign flashing in the passage that says, He was cured. He was cured. He was cured. That's the one thing that should stand out. He was healed. He was made better. He was made well. He was cured. In case you haven't caught it yet, the man was cured and it went right over everybody's head. Hey, you're carrying, he's, 
Who is it? That, what are you carrying your pallet on the Sabbath? Yeah, but I can walk. I've never been able to walk, let alone carry a pallet on the Sabbath. But you're carrying the pallet on the Sabbath. Who is it who said this to you? This has to stop today. Who is this clown running around healing people, making people better and improving lives on the Sabbath? This has to stop and it has to stop today. That's their attitude. Totally oblivious to the fact that this man had been cured. Now now I ask you this. Who really is violating the law of God in the passage? The man or the Jews? If the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, and to consider other people as more important than yourself, if God really desires compassion and not sacrifice, if the fulfillment of the entire law is summed up in this, love your neighbor and do good to your neighbor and love one another, if compassion and care and love for one's neighbor is the central feature of the law of God, tell me, who's really violating the law here? This man by carrying his pallet or them in their absolute and total lack of compassion? These people, because they did not have compassion and could not appreciate the cure, they had no appreciation whatsoever for what this meant to this man and his family. They were in utter and complete violation of the law of God because they had no compassion and no love for this man and for everybody attached to this man. And all they're concerned about, they've set aside the law of God, all they're concerned about is what? Violation of their traditions. They were the lawbreakers, not this man. They were the lawbreakers. They did not love this man as they did themselves. And I will tell you this. This is true of every self-righteous individual. Anybody who is self-righteous lacks compassion for other people. You know why that's true? Because they are self-righteous. And who is at the center of a self-righteous individual's universe? Self. And self-righteous people invariably, invariably, I found without exception, lack compassion and love for other people. Because to them, it's all about their rules, their regulation, their appearances, you respecting them. It's all about them. And these Jews are no different. Total lack of compassion. Total violation of the law of God. They stand condemned by the law, and they are accusing this man who has done no violation of the law whatsoever. You're violating the law. And you almost want to step into the scene and say, "Uh, Pot, have you met Kettle? Kettle, this is Pot. These men are accusing him of violating the law, and they, they are the guilty ones. Just amazing. Amazing lack of compassion. So what does the man do? Look at verse 11. The one who says to me, or he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. What does that sound like to you? You know what it sounds like to me? He did it. He he made me do it. He told me it's his fault. You want to nail me for it now? Maybe the guy is genuinely fearful of profaning the Sabbath, which would bring what? What was the violent, what was the penalty for profaning the Sabbath? It was death. Maybe he's genuinely fearful that they are holding over his head a death penalty, and he just wants to get out from underneath of it. Sounds to me as if he is pointing the finger at Jesus and shifting blame to him. Now, maybe, 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 maybe the man really is just saying this. There is someone who commanded me to do something and he demonstrated that he has the authority to command me to do that by healing me. So he healed me. And the one who healed me is more authoritative than you and more authoritative than the Sabbath 
And he commanded me to walk and pick up my pallet on the Sabbath and do it. And so I have obeyed him. And since he has more authority than me, you also ought to obey him as well. Maybe that's the sense in which he makes that statement. Some commentators have suggested that, that he's really trying to defend Jesus. Now, I might buy that if it weren't for verse 15. Look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, I think he turns Jesus in, in verse 15. We're going to get to that in just a second. So what is he doing in verse 11? I think the man is shifting the blame. One commentator said, this man is not the stuff of which heroes are made. And I think that's true. You contrast this man with the guy in verse nine, uh, chapter 9. The man in chapter 9 who was born blind, Jesus healed him on the Sabbath, and what did he do? Big controversy again, takes up a whole chapter. It's much longer, much more detailed than this. And they call in his parents and ask his parents, and his parents throw him under the bus. You ask him. They bring the guy in, and they ask him, well, who is it that made you well? He not only points to Jesus, but he confronts them with their hypocrisy, their self-righteousness, their false doctrine, and their violation of the law of God. And he just puts it right back in their face. Chapter 9. Oh, I love chapter 9. That guy has got some guts. He stands right up to the religious leaders, not afraid of being unsynagogued. He's not afraid of being kicked out. He's not afraid of death. He's not afraid of what men can do to him. He stands right up in their face and puts it right back on them. That's what this guy should have done. But he didn't do it. So now when the man said, the, the man who healed me, he was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. Look at verse 13. That statement in verse verse 12, is it? Yeah, verse 12. They asked him, who's the man who said you pick up your pallet and walk? Now what should their response have been? The response should have been this. You were healed? Tell us about that. Oh, I, I was sick for 38 years, unable to walk. And then he would have relayed the whole story about the, Jesus coming in and seeing him and giving the command and walk up. And now I'm, I'm here walking. This was just less than five minutes ago. I was right over there in the, in, in the pool. He, he healed you after a 38-year-long illness and paralysis, and he made you walk instantly just like that? Who is this man? We have to meet this man. Because we know from the Old Testament prophets that the prophets predicted that the Messiah would do works like this. He would make the lame to walk and the blind to see. We, we would know that the Messiah, if he is in our midst, would be able to perform signs like this. Take us to this man. We must hear him and see what he has to say from God. Because if he is a man sent from God, which he must be if he's able to perform signs like this, he must be sent from God, then we must hear him and we must obey him and we must submit to him. They didn't say that, did they? No, no, no. When the man said, he who healed me, said to me, pick up his pallet and walk. Guess what that was to them? That was like throwing a stake out into a pack of ravenous wolves. Because now all of these Pharisees are saying to themselves, you mean we have two Sabbath violators? Not just one, but now we have two. So there's another man in the story, a man who healed you. That's a violation of the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath. We can't put up with that. Not only that, but he commanded you to violate the Sabbath. That's two violations of the Sabbath by this man and one violation of the Sabbath by you. So why don't you turn state's evidence, turn in the guy with the, the higher number of crimes, and we might let you go. Who is it who said this to you? They're not interested in healing. They're not interested in this being evidence of his messianic credentials. All they're interested in what? We have another Sabbath violator. This is going to be good. That's what they're thinking in their minds. Verse 14. Or verse 13. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Probably a lot of pandemonium after this man stood up and began to walk and uh, talk to other people, and people saw that. Maybe some of them were sitting there thinking, hey, did we, did we not see the stirring of the water while we were waiting here for the stirring of the water? Did somebody drop this guy in? What, the water was stirred and I missed it? And so there's all kinds of, remember, the, there's a multitude of people in the place. 
So likely, Jesus just slipped out rather quickly, and I think by design, slipped out of that place rather quickly before he could be noticed. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Now, we don't know how long afterwards. Was it 10 minutes afterwards or 20 minutes afterwards? We don't know. A couple days later, could have been. The text doesn't tell us. Listen, nor does the text tell us why the man was in the temple. You and I might presume that the man went to the temple to worship God. But there are a lot of, especially during feast time, there are a lot of reasons why somebody might go to the temple that are of no spiritual concern and no spiritual interest whatsoever. Maybe the man was convinced that he had violated the Sabbath and he went to the temple to offer a sacrifice for his violation of the Sabbath. That's possible. But Jesus sought him out. Jesus found him, which he did at the beginning of this passage as well, right? Jesus went. Jesus took the initiative. He sought this man out. He singled this man out. Now he finds him in the temple. Jesus found him and he was looking for him. Verse 14. And he said to him, Behold, you have become well. Become well is in the perfect tense, indicating something that happened and has continuing effect or lasting effect. And so it's Jesus' way of emphasizing the lasting nature of the cure. Almost you could translate it this way. Behold, you have become well and you are still well. He's emphasizing the the fact that he was still well. Likely, there was a lot of people cured at the pool who were cured in a Benny Hinn sense. Right? They leave the pool and they come back and not much later they're what? Sick again. All over again. They're sick again. Probably not a lot of lasting cures that came out of the pool. Jesus is emphasizing the lasting nature of the cure that he had received. Behold, you're well. And you're still well. You're continuing in a well condition. Now look at this warning. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The most natural way of understanding that phrase, that statement, is that Jesus is indicating Two things. Number one, that it was sin that had caused this man's original illness, which results in the paralysis. And Jesus is pointing that out. We're not told what the sin is. We can't even begin to speculate about what the sin is. Jesus knew what it was. The man knew what it was. And Jesus is calling him to repentance. Stop sinning. If you continue in this sin, something much worse will happen to you. Now, he he may be there indicating a another physical calamity that could come upon this man, another illness. Maybe the man's illness would return if he didn't sin. Or it might be just that Jesus is saying, you have been healed and made well, now stop your sinning. And if you don't stop your sinning, something much worse than 38 years of paralysis is going to strike you. Because listen, laying on a bed for 38 years is a horrible thing. Sitting next to a pool waiting for a cure is a horrible thing. Believing in a superstition regarding an angel stirring up waters and being healed, that's a horrible thing. 38 years of paralysis is a horrible thing. But none of those, and all of those combined, do not even approach the horror of eternity spent in hell. And what we see is that though the man was healed physically, he was not healed spiritually. Jesus didn't heal him spiritually at the pool. The man didn't even know who Jesus was, who it was who said to him. He knew nothing about this man, nothing whatsoever. And now Jesus is a very stern warning. If you don't stop sinning, something worse than 38 years of paralysis is going to be your lot. You need to repent, and you need to be reconciled to God. Now, you know what I would love to read next? You know what I would love verse 15 to read? I would love verse 15 to read, like the Samaritans in chapter 4, this man believed the word of Jesus, and he was saved, he and his whole household. I would love to read that this man responded with repentant faith and repentant belief. And that like the woman at the well, he rushed out of the temple to go tell other people, hey, come see a man who healed me of my illness of 38 years. Could this man be the Christ? 
But what do we read in verse 15? He went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Do you think this man was ignorant of their Jewish attitude toward Jesus? He had seen their hostility. He knew exactly what they were going to do to him if they caught him. He knew exactly how they felt about what he had done. And what is he doing? He is throwing Jesus under the bus. I'll tell you who it is. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I saw him in the temple. I can pick him out now. I will take you to him and I will show you who he is that healed me. Is that not one of the most horrific examples of ingratitude and unthankfulness and unrepentance that you have ever seen in your life? John MacArthur, in commenting on this passage, said, Is it astonishing that he would accept this healing after nearly four decades of terrible distress and then walk away from Jesus and show his loyalty to the Jews who hated him? This has to be one of the great acts of ingratitude and obstinate unbelief in all of Scripture. End quote. And I agree with that. This has to be one of the greatest acts of obstinate unbelief and hatred and ingratitude that you see anywhere in Scripture. This man received a healing, and as soon as he had the opportunity, he betrayed Jesus into the hands of those who hated him. He knew what the Jews would do to Jesus if they caught him. He knew it. He had seen it because they had confronted him. And he knew the traditions. And he knew how they felt. And he knew that they wanted Jesus. And as soon as he left the temple, he turned Jesus into him. That's horrible, isn't it? Now I ask you this. Before we throw this guy under the bus and heap too much shame and guilt upon him, what about you and I? Is it not true that Jesus has done far more for us than he did for this man? Far more for us? He healed this man of a 38-year illness. What has he done of us? Well, he has healed me so far of 38 years of sin. Sin and rebellion and, and wickedness and idolatry and hatred and ungratitude and gossip and slander and unforgiveness and everything else that I have heaped upon myself for the last 38 years, all of that I have been healed of. He has healed me of my disease of of sin and the curse of God and the wrath of God that comes upon me because of my sin. He died on a cross for me and bore all of the wrath of God and the penalty on my behalf. That is what the Lord has done for me. So he then deserves from us, is it not true, our unflinching loyalty, our uncompromising obedience, our unending love, and our nonstop service. Is that not true? And it is also true that every act of disobedience, however small or however great, is also an act of betrayal. Now, the good news is that by the gospel and in the gospel, God, for his own glory's sake, to preserve his own name, to demonstrate the goodness and the kindness of his own grace and glory, has forgiven us of all of those acts of disobedience, great and small. And yet I still have to look at myself and say, Every act of disobedience, whether I know it or not, is in itself an act of betrayal. One that I need to repent of, one that I need to turn from, and one that I need to ask his forgiveness for. In many ways, I find that I'm just like the guy in John chapter 5. Though not as bold, though not as brass. But I see myself there nonetheless. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful that you have so cleansed us and forgiven us of our sins. We thank you that in Christ atonement has been made and you have poured out upon your son all of the wrath that we deserve. Thank you that you have shown your kindness and your grace to us in your son. And Lord Jesus, you are worthy of our unflinching obedience and uncompromising loyalty and unending service and love. We're thankful that you put us in a position that we can begin to offer these things to you. Forgive us where we fall short. 
And make us, O God, to see the horror of our own disobedience and to love you more. Turn our hearts toward you in repentant faith and in obedience and love in response to all that you have done for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.